0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Ever since the Taliban victory in 2021, there's been very little prospect of significant change in Afghanistan. There's no rival to the Taliban and no prospect of them losing power, at least for the foreseeable future. But within that framework, what does the future hold for the country? There's no one better able to answer that than Kate Clark, who used to report from Kabul under the first Taliban government for the BBC, she's remained working on Afghanistan ever since. Welcome to you. Thanks very much, Owen. Nice to be and, on. Yeah, no, great to have you. And and do you agree with that basic take that the Taliban are there for you know as, as long as they want to be, really?
1: Uh, well, um, certainly they have a monopoly of power. There's no certainly no armed group or no political group that threatens them at the moment. However, I would say they are behaving in a and, and also there's no there's no foreign government it's, that's going to to try and topple them. The, the the Western nations are not interested. The regional powers um would largely rather get on with Kabul, with the Islamic Emirate than not. They're interested in trade. Everyone talks about the need for an inclusive government and for the Taliban to start respecting the rights of women and girls. But certainly in the region, there's been a lot of accommodation. However, the way that they took power, the the old government toppled extraordinarily fast. Most of its key players left. The Taliban walked into a lot of places. There was some fierce fighting in some, but many places they did deals. The old authorities left or, or surrendered. They took power, they believe, by God's grace and they are, they are thereby by, this is a you know, divine victory. And unfortunately, the, the, the way that they've taken power, monopolising it, not allowing anyone else a look in, um, a fair number of reprisal attacks, you could say that is not the way to try and hold power. Because Afghanistan is a country of many peoples, many ethnicities, different groups, regions. And for a government to try and uh, monopolise power may carry the seeds of of problems further down the line. There's no one... uh, Absolutely, there isn't absolutely no one challenging them at the moment. But I think you would have to say in the last 40 years... The lessons have been that you an Afghan government that tries to monopolize power may not
0: last in the long
1: run, so I think that's that's the caveat i would make
0: and and you know you say there are no armed groups capable of of uh, challenging them, but there are armed groups so let's just run through them uh, and i guess well you tell us, tell us which is the most powerful islamic state uh you know the afghan branch of Islamic State or the sort of remnants of the Northern Alliance, the the group that used to fight the Taliban from the north of Afghanistan or or anyone else? So there's, I'd say there's two main groups. There's the, as you said, the
1: Islamic State in Khorasan province. Khorasan is is an old word um, for sort of Persia stretching into what's now Pakistan, uh, which is the the sort of Islamic State franchise. Um, It was did actually hold some territory under the republic but it was uh cleaned out of there it's in in nangarhar in the east by a combination of taliban u.s forces and the old um afghan republican army police and militia forces nevertheless it has some i would say some ideological attractions for some it's got supporters on the pakistan side of the border but the taliban are doing are, are have it under control and indeed there have been killings of um salafists now the islamic state are salafists that's the bit of um islam that's uh you would see in the saudi state for example um uh Osama bin Laden, as well, but also Salafists can be uh, non jihadi, quietist, want to live peacefully at home. And the according to the UN, uh, the Emirate has been rounding up both types, accusing them of being ISKP, so Islamic State in the Khorasan province. That's that's one of the things that's gone on since the, the Taliban took power, and then you've got the National Resistance Front, National Resistance Front, which, as you said, is uh, it's got some of the holdouts from the Northern Alliance, who are also key members of the Republic body politic and government and Parliament. Um, they were the last to be; they actually held out against the Taliban, and were. Fiercely destroyed, and again, there have been um a lot of allegations from the UN, others of human rights abuses in Panchia, which re- which listeners may know about. That's the the valley to the north of Kabul, which was a bastion of resistance in the first Taliban government and against the Soviet Union. The most famous leader there was Ahmad Shah Massoud, who was assassinated on the eve of the 9-11 attacks. So you've got uh, that. They've, they've been pretty well defeated. There are occasional um, attacks against the Taliban, uh, and most of their leadership is in Tajikistan. So across the border to the
0: north. And when you say that no foreign government is interested, I mean, which foreign government is most interested in opposing the Taliban or is there really nothing?
1: The, there's there's no foreign government that's going to march in and try and defeat them militarily, so I think that that's and uh, many Afghans, you know, not surprising after after forty years and more of foreign governments, first the Soviet Union and then I mean the regional powers, Pakistan in particular, but also but particularly America since two thousand and one, they are sort of saying you know when are the Americans going to intervene and. um many of us keep saying "Well, the Americans are really not that interested in Afghanistan anymore. They just want it to be quiet. I mean, the, the sort of rather unpleasant joke in, in Washington is what is Joe Biden's Afghan policy answer for it not to be headline news in the, in the Washington post or New York times. I.e., Washington would like Afghanistan to be quiet and go away after it's ignominious uh, withdrawal in 2021. However, There are sanctions on the Emirates and they predate its re-establishment. Both the UN and the US have sanctions against, well, they were um, individual members of the group. As it's now in government, it's against the country. Those sanctions have been greatly watered down because of the the humanitarian catastrophe that followed the Taliban's Uh, capture of the country when uh, most aid was abruptly turned off. That came back on again, but that's another story. So there is, um, and and if you hear the statements pretty well universally, not only from Western countries, but also the regional countries, they all bang on about the same point. They want an inclusive government. They want um, the Taliban to... um, deal with women and girls more fairly. There have been really stringent restrictions against um, all sorts of things to do with the female half of the population of Afghanistan. And as well, there will be uh, demands for the Taliban to deal more with yeah, what what the UN and the US and many of the regional powers would talk about terrorist groups based in the country. So there is cons- there's sort of There's consensus there and it's not in the Taliban's favour. And of course, they think they have, as I said, a God-given right to rule and people should start treating them like a normal government that is in control of the territory, that is, they would say, doing very well on governing. And uh, they think that the sanctions and the other measures are just uh, a continuation of of the fight against them not by military means anymore, but by economic means, and by not recognising the the Taliban, the emirate, as the
0: legitimate rulers of Afghanistan. So they think they're doing well governing. Are they, in any respect, doing well in governing?
1: Um, uh, it, that depends. As I said, they are an incredibly t- limited group in power. Now, if you think about the old government, for all its problems... If you were an Afghan, you could see someone in government or in parliament who looked like you—an uh, MP or a minister or a senior official. You could go and stay in the guest house in Kabul if you had a problem. You could go and talk to someone about getting a job or getting a contract or getting a new school built. There were there were ways into government for people, and now the the uh, the, the authorities are. Well, they're all men. They're almost all mullahs, and they're mainly Pashtun and mainly Pashtun from the from the south and the southeast. So, are there are a few Tajiks, there are a few uh, Uzbeks, and other 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 ethnic groups. If you're Shia, either Hazara or Syed or one of the other Shia groups, there's not much entry there. But for most people, there's not much entry. So that's 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 one of the problems. Um, that if you're governing for the people, that's a problem. So let's put that on one side. Um, because the republic fell so precipitously, there wasn't a great deal of destruction. Uh, and most of the, the sort of systems and systems of government were maintained. You had a large exodus of, of many of the technically minded people, but enough stayed that, for example, the Taliban were able to get the um, the computer system for the for customs online very very quickly. They've they've basically um, co opted most of the old state. So all the things that had been built up from 2020 from t- 2001 and before they that they, they have co-opted so you'll have the same I don't know the ministry structures the same computer programs the same ways of doing things all of that has carried on and there's enough technical expertise in the in the state for that that to happen um on corrupt the the, the republic was incredibly corrupt um certainly on Taxing customs, a lot of the, the the demands for bribes have gone away. Everyone says this. Uh however, there are huge black holes in where the money gets spent. The Taliban have never published a, a proper budget, and that's one thing that the Republic was very transparent about. We don't know who gets contracts, state contracts, um concessions for mining. A lot of that is not is very opaque. Um the Taliban introduced the what they call Islamic taxes, that's usher and zakat, so that's the tax on the harvest and on increases in livestock, which represents a huge new transfer of resources from rural households to the state. That goes directly to the um the Taliban Supreme Leader's Office. Again, they say that it goes out to the needy, to the orphans and the widows, but we don't know. So they're all the so it's it's less corrupt on the sort of um, public-facing side. You, you're less likely to be asked for a bribe know, to get a to get a, a document that you need to get a certificate saying you've been married to pay to pay your taxes that sort of thing. But on where the money goes, on who benefits from the taxes, that's much that's very opaque. And the other thing I would say is what we have seen, and this is from, there was one three month mini budget that was released early on and the World Bank has managed to get some figures. Uh, The World Bank says 60%. So that's two thirds of the government budget for a country at peace is going on the security forces. That's army, police, intelligence. So, I mean, this is a country where public health is in crisis. Um, Human Rights Watch is just about to release a report on that. Um, The Taliban do pay for um, schools. They've kept the the civil servant wages going. But huge needs, socioeconomic needs that are not being met. And that's partly because the Emirate has chosen basically to reward its foot soldiers with government jobs. And... You know, who needs an army? Who needs, you know, several hundred thousand strong men in uniform, police and army?
0: I remember when the the first Taliban government was there, they seemed to have absolutely no interest at all in, and that's when you were living there, uh, in in, in the economy. I mean, they just weren't interested in anything to do with business or commerce.
1: Yeah, and that was because they were pretty... they were very focused on fighting the Northern Alliance, which of course they called a jihad, even though everyone was Afghan and everyone was Muslim. Um, this time they don't really, they don't have that enemy to fight. Um, many of them have lived abroad as well in the Gulf or in in um, in Karachi and Pakistan, other places in Pakistan. And I don't know, they've got, there is a certain, there has been a certain change in many of the Taliban, I would say they have been, you know, for example, many of them would uh, are much more comfortable like girls going to school. Many of those in exile, their their kids were going to school, even university, even their daughters going to university in the Gulf. That's different from the first time round. However, at the, at the heart of the emirate, we do have these very very conservative southern rural village mullahs, and for them it seems the idea of uh, girls once they're into their teenage years out on the street in public going to school is anathema so they still haven't allowed the opening of secondary schools for girls or and they've closed the universities to girls so there is a certain tension within the emirate now it's much less well as you rem- you probably remember owen the in in the nineties there were also schools open but the the primary schools for girls were also closed uh, officially closed there was quite a lot of turning of blind eyes to the education in the nineties depending on who the local authorities were um more room it's i think i think there's less room for manoeuvre now because of social media cameras on iphones it's and the taliban have really got this desire to centralise um to you know they they are more interested in governing. They're more interested in the economy, Um, and yet they are a mili- they're a military religious organization. So most of their their cadre are not trained or educated in in the ways of government.
0: Now then, to what extent are they unified? I mean, I've read on the girls' education issue that there is there are splits within. The, ta- the Afghan Taliban movement about that. Is that true or is it pretty unified?
1: Yes, that's that's true. And there's, there's been enough people making public statements about the need for girls to go to school, for it to be clear. But that has not translated into um, anything like I don't know, political moves to get things to... I mean, they have accepted the Emir's orders and with, the Taliban have a very strong... Um, principle that you obey your superior. That's a sort of religious injunction, and that means Hibatullah, uh, who's known as Amir al-Mu'minin, so the 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 commander of the of the believers. That's his official title. The supreme leader of the Taliban. He's he's decided that secondary schools shouldn't open for girls. Girls shouldn't go to university. Women shouldn't work for NGOs or the UN or foreign embassies. Um, that they should cover their faces in public those sort of things um and i'd say of all of those issues it's the education that is there's the most disquiet about and i I think that's partly because many of taliban have lived abroad as i said and you know you you live in karachi or dubai and you see that the (laughs) the world the world doesn't fall apart because the neighbours' girls are going to school and I think that's that's the lived experience of, of Taliban who've seen what happens when girls go to school. It's not a disaster for many of them. But also there's a lot of desire from Afghans themselves that, that has changed. Education is seen as a, as a good thing. For many Afghans, they want their children to go to school, including their daughters. Uh, so there is a there's a demand there that's not being met. Um and of course, as well even you know even the most conservative muller wants his wife to go to see a female doctor if she's having trouble with a pregnancy so there is a there's a need for educated women, which has always been there, which there's always been a disconnect between banning girls and women from education and but then wanting um trained female medical staff at the very least. I remember in the nineties asking you know, um, some of the Taliban officials about this, and they said, well, we can we can import women from Tajikistan and Iran and Pakistan, women doctors. But that's, you know, that, that might be an option if, if Afghanistan was a very rich country, but it's not. You do need to have indigenous uh, midwives, doctors, at the very least, if you
0: want to um, have women getting proper medical treatment. And just tell us a bit about the Supreme Leader then, uh, his background, and how his office functions. You know, wh- how does it work?
1: Well, um, uh, um, listeners will know that Kabul is the capital of Afghanistan. But as in the 90s, the real centre of power is now Kandahar, which was the capital, I don't know, several centuries ago. Um, Hebatullah uh, doesn't leave Kandahar very much. Um, Cabinet meetings are now people travel there to have them. Um, he's got um um ulama advisors, so islam other Islamic scholars like him advising him. That is that has become the real center of power. So it's shifted. Um and people so you, you get um Taliban from other parts of the country. The southeast is still quite powerful, but otherwise, even the even Taliban can feel quite marginalised by that shift in the power. And of course, it was always large. Kandahar was the place where the movement started in nineteen ninety four, so it's always had that. There's been as that I would say that's the centre of gravity always. Uh, But in during the insurgency, uh, it became a nationwide movement uh there were uzbek and and tarjik taliban and and they've been really sidelined um since the the emirate re-established their 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 power in the country i think one of the one of the other issues that i wanted to introduce was the economy which i think is key and i think it's it's one of the issues on which the islamic emirate will stand or fail and if you it when the foreigners left in 2021, they took an awful lot of money with them. So, the aid money is, is about the same as it was before. It dipped sharply, and then and then it's come back. But there was also a lot of money that was brought in. I don't know military support, the money that the foreign arm spent in Afghanistan, and that's all gone. You know, billions of dollars worth was wiped off the um. The the sort of economic balance that Afghanistan will not get back. It is a substantially poorer country than it was. The economy shrank, GDP shrank, but uh, I think by a fifth in 2021 and it's continuing to shrink. Um, Demand is low. There's now deflation, which people, economists are worried about. Um, And, Getting any sort of growth, particularly a country where the population is still growing, and no, it's really difficult to leave. Even migration to Iran and Pakistan is now very difficult, let alone Europe or the Gulf. So, and at the same time, the the main donor countries are really quite fed up with the Emirate. And the the, the aid money is falling as well. So I think that's. That's something that worries a lot of us about the sort of long term future for the Afghan economy and its ability to um, sustain Afghans. And and the other thing, of course, is global warming. Of course, Afghanistan being one of the world's lowest emitters of greenhouse gases is also one of the countries that's going to be most affected by climate change uh, with very frequent and with droughts increasing in frequency and severity and it's still a, a a country that where agriculture is really important. So all of those all of those issues make it really really tricky for the Taliban but also really tricky for all the donor countries. Uh, you know if the Taliban had just let the girls' schools stay open and the universities open for girls they'd kept allowing women to work in general I, th- I think in 2021, there was so much shock in Washington and London and Paris and elsewhere that the support may well have continued. There may well have been some much more engagement, bilateral aid even, but there's there's been so many political issues that neither side will back down on that it's a really, really tricky issue, that issue of um, external relations and yet again next week there's going to be a, another major meeting um on what the very this uh, you know the various both regional and international powers uh the emirate is going to send representatives to doha there's going to be another meeting again to try and thrash out this issue of engagement uh because the emirate is still not recognized um there's still money going in from the donor nations, which is hugely important for the economy. It's kept it's kept the economy afloat. It's kept people alive. Where where does this end up? And we're still we're basically Owen, we're still in the same impasse that we were in in 2021 when the when the US troops
0: finally left. Um, and it, it's not it's not a good scenario. But I'm a bit, I'm a bit confused. You're saying that uh, I think you said aid flows have maintained, and there there is still an aid relationship in terms of mm. donor funding, but but also that it's under threat. So so where is that issue?
1: So the the aid at the moment is about uh, what it was pre pre COVID. There was more aid that came in during COVID. Um, levels of poverty had been already increasing. There again, they're about back up to where we were pre COVID. The nature of the assistance has changed. So it's no, there's not much development assistance. A lot of it is humanitarian, which is supposed to be short-term, apolitical, life-saving. So it's not aimed at solving problems. It's aimed at keeping people alive. And that is the bit that uh, appears to be going down because you know, there's lots else happening in the world. Afghanistan isn't the only crisis, and it's not the only um, demand on the rich countries' Um Uh, governments. So it's it's both, Owen. You've got you've got a change in aid, so it's gone from bilateral, so aid basically supporting the old Republic government to humanitarian. And then you've also got um the actual amount of aid is going down. And you've got all the other money that used to come into the country in because of the of the conflict. So the 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 support to the Afghan security forces the money that the foreign army spent in afghanistan that's gone that's gone forever so there's less far less money coming in it's enough to it's been enough to keep uh, the economy from completely collapsing uh but it's not enough to for growth or really to see how how things can can get better and of course ideally you would want that to come from not aid but from private investment and all those other uh, those other ways in which a, an economy can 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 grow
0: so just two more issues uh mm. w- w- one is um we'll talk at the end about uh tribal versus religious power but just just first you you mentioned what you know that the americans are basically hoping it would all go away really. uh <laughs> what i mean is then does anyone recognize them at all and where are the Saudis and the Pakistanis and the Chinese? What 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 are the attitudes of the neighbours, the important neighbours? So no one's recognised the Emirate in the nineties. Uh,
1: it was recognised by Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, in, and the United Arab Emirates (UAE). This time, no one. Um, there has been there have been some ambassadors, Taliban ambassadors recognised. Most recently, uh, the President of China met the Afghan. Taliban ambassador. That was a big thing for the for the emirate. Uh, there were news stories that Uzbekistan and Tajikistan in the last week or so have also recognised the Emirates ambassadors there. but I haven't got that confirmed. So there's a few there's a few ambassadors in Kabul. So Japan has an embassy. Uh, the EU doesn't have an ambassador, but it does have an office. Um, Turkey, Russia, Saudi, Pakistan. I think India as well, and there's various various countries that do have representation there. Most of the Western countries they either visit or they see the the Emirates political office in Doha. And that's how they deal with them. So there's there is diplomatic there's there's some diplomatic engagement, but no one has recognised the Emirate as the legitimate legitimate government of of Afghanistan. Last time round, as I said, those three countries did, but the the UN seat remained with the previous government, which by 2001, I think, had about 15% of the Afghanistan's territory, but it was still recognised.
0: And just finally, on the nature of Afghan society and the way it's changing, I mean, we've got this very ideological religious movement, divinely inspired, as it thinks, uh, governing the country and basically ruled by mullahs, as you said. Uh, and yet we saw in the struggle against the Americans, how important tribal forces were and tribal leaders were, and people, yeah, you know, the strong men, the famous sort of uh, strong men, as they're called, of, of Afghanistan. So is there a sense in which the religious ideology is overcoming traditional tribal sources of authority or not? Uh, I, I'd say no.
1: Um, if people want to go and have a look at our website, we did write a, a, a long paper, How Tribal Are the Taliban?, that was back in, oh, over a decade ago. And I think it still holds. It's basically that the, the Taliban don't like to talk about tribes. They don't like to talk about ethnicities. Uh, they say we're all Afghans, we're all we're all Muslims. Um, Afghans themselves actually in general really, it's, it's sort of a bit impolite to talk about ethnicities and tribes, but it's there. It's absolutely part of the it's absolutely there in the landscape and it was there for example during the 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 resistance against the soviet union people organized their resistance according to clan and tribe and ethnic group so it's it's a it's a sort of normal fact of of afghan life and the taliban are no different um so they talk about i mean their their ideology their ideology is very it's supra tribal it's it's nationalist it's Based on Islam, based on them, it, it's quite. It's not a. It's not an exporting ideology. They don't want to make other countries like, you know, they don't want to export the Emirate to other countries. It's not like um, I don't know the Muslim Brotherhood or um, ISK uh, Islamic State. It's it's very much national. It's very much Afghanistan based. Um, but still, if you want to get something done, you you find someone from your network. Which is likely to be tribal, ethnic, clan-based. That's just how Afghanistan works. That that's a sort of constant factor. It's not the only factor though. And I think that's, you know, there were there were large changes in the last 20 years. Um, partly just because there was more money, there was more education, there were more opportunities. Um, you know, you've got the you've got you've got young people who see things very differently not all of them but i think there have been sea changes and this 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 desire for uh, school education is one of them i think that's one of the huge changes that's happened in afghanistan and connections with the outside world as well uh, you you will remember in the 90s there weren't even telephones you couldn't even tele- you could telephone within kabul city if someone had a telephone and they weren't the sort of they were wind up telephones um but you couldn't. You, if you wanted to go and see someone, if you wanted to talk to someone. You had to go and see them. I mean, it's. The, I think it's the last great days of the reporter. Um, you know, if I wanted to find out what was happening the other side of Kabul or the other side of the country, I had to go there and talk to people. Um, and similarly, you know, the, the bosses in London could not talk to me when I left the office. So it was, it was a it was a wonderful haven um, from that from that point of view and a great place to be a reporter. That has all gone. I mean, you know, you people with smartphones in the middle of the country if they can afford them. Uh so that's access that's access for both good and ill. Um there's yeah for good and ill. That's that's where Afghanistan has reached. Um I would say the other thing about you know the Emirate is it's got a very strong ideology. It wants to monopolize power. Um, it's got—I would say—it's got quite strong authoritarian instincts. But in a way, Afghanistan is too poor to really have a, a strong police state. And even if you're spending sixty percent of government spending on security forces, it's not really enough in Afghanistan. It's too anarchic. It—and by anar- anarchic, I mean sort of self-organizing. I mean anarchic in a good way. You know, Afghans self-organise much better than anywhere else I've seen in the world. If they want to get something done, they will organise their neighbours to go and, I don't know, clean out the irrigation ditches or build a new mosque or petition for for a school building or whatever it is. You know, there's there's very, very, very strong traditions of um, suspicion of the state and government, a very strong... um, Structures and instincts to to self organize to help each other. One of the amazing things that that really struck us when we did um, we did interviews about household economy. So we would started interviewing people before the fall of Kabul about what it was like living with the the Taliban as the new rulers, and that morphed into interviews about household economy because it was clear that that was the key issue in the autumn of two thousand and twenty one. How were people surviving? And the most amazing thing, Owen, people—if they had one tiny bit of good fortune—they would share it. So if they, I don't know, someone had twenty dollars sent from a, by a distant cousin from from America, they would give a little bit to the to the widowed aunt who didn't have anything. Or if they'd had, if they'd had, uh, I know one person was working in a family, it would support multiple families. And this this very very strong instinct of charity and of helping your neighbours, helping people less fortunate, is also the, a glue that that holds the country together. Um, one of the things that infuriates me is when the World Bank and others call Afghanistan a fragile state. Because, you know, Afghans put up with what British people wouldn't put up with in a, in a day. They put up for... A, for a decade, and they
0: survive. It's a really Very... good point. It's, it's a resilient state in a way. I mean, the people are so resilient.
1: I I would say, yeah. Although that's a bit. I, I would say it's um. You know, there is sort of given there is give and take. Uh, so, for example, when you in the take for example the, the droughts we've seen, you may get big landlords, but they're not going to see the poor tenant farmers starve bit more now because there was built more sort of capitalist development in the last 20 years where you get absent landlords but generally you don't see your neighbour starve if you can possibly help it Uh, you might buy up their land of course but you're not going to see people go hungry and that's that's and it applies to the diaspora as well and we've seen remittances go up and it may be that there's more you know, richer Afghans living abroad now, or it might be that they see the need and they feel compelled to send money home. But that is one way in which, you know, this country hasn't fallen apart, Uh, uh, you know, despite everything that the climate and the world powers and its
0: own leaders throws at it. Well, it's absolutely fascinating to hear your account of it and we're very grateful uh, for you explaining it so clearly. So thank you very much indeed. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.